it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Love this podcast because it crushes your dreams of getting rich quick. They actually got me into reading stats for anything. You're tuned in to the Investing for Beginners podcast. Led by Andrew Sather and Dave Ahern. Step-by-step premium investing guidance for beginners. Your path to financial freedom starts now. Starts now. All right, folks, welcome to Investing for Beginners podcast. Today, Brian Feraldi and I are going to record live from Cincinnati. We are at the Economy Fire Conference, and we're going to do a live show today. This is something I've never done before, so Brian and I are going to talk about the P.E. ratio and why it might suck or why it could be okay. So there's some interesting information that he's going to share with us. So, Brian, thank you for joining us for our first live show. Again, Andrew will be back next week. This is just a temporary deal, so don't freak out, people. So This is awesome. I love coming to conferences, especially money conferences, getting to meet people like you in person for the first time. So this will be a lot of fun. Yeah, it is. Yeah, we're, I'm definitely looking forward to this. So, Brian, you got some great information you want to share with us about the P-E ratio and maybe why it may not be the optimal metric to use. So could you kind of talk us through maybe the basics of the P-E ratio, and then we can kind of work through maybe why it's not so great? Sure. So the P-E ratio is one of the most widely used valuation metrics that exists. In fact, I think for decades, it was the only metric that was printed in newspapers for like people could use to look at how expensive or cheap a company was. It's a metric that I absolutely love. And when I first started investing, it was the hammer that I applied to every nail, investing nail that I saw. And uh, the unfortunate thing about the P-E ratio is that there is a whole host of reasons while using the P-E ratio. The P-E ratio is a completely flawed metric. And if you rely on it solely to make investing decisions, uh, you can make bad decisions just like I have many times. All right. So maybe can we talk through what the P-E ratio is? So for people out there that are new to the show and aren't familiar with this voodoo that we're talking about, what is the price-earnings ratio? Sure. So P-E ratio stands for price 
to earnings ratio. It's simply a measure of the difference between the price uh, per share that a stock trades at and the earnings per share uh, that a company uh, pr- produces. Uh, in theory, it is a single number that shows you how expensive or cheap a given stock is. A uh, good rule of thumb is that the S&P 500 has traded at an average P.E. ratio over the last 100 years of about 15. So just knowing that, if you came across a stock that traded at 25 times uh, earnings, you would say that that is expensive when compared to the average market multiple. And if you came across a stock that traded at five times earnings, that would be historically cheap when compared to the uh, the average market uh, multiple. So it's a very good shorthand tool and a number that you can look at and quickly assess whether a company is cheap or expensive. Okay. Awesome. Awesome. All right. So I know that the P-E ratio has many uses, but there's apparently there's three kinds of P-E ratios. Can you kind of talk through those real quick? Sure. Broadly speaking, the types of P-E ratio depend on what the E is in the denominator, what kind of earnings you are using in the bottom. And there's several different E's that you can use in the bottom, which changes the flavor of the P-E ratio that you're looking at. So the most common uh, P-E ratio to look at uses the E, which is the TTM earnings. TTM simply stands for trailing 12 months earnings. So essentially, it takes that company's most recent income statement, looks backwards one year, adds up all of the earnings per share of that last year, and that's what the number that is uh, often uh, referenced, which makes sense. That is actual data uh, looking backwards. Uh, However, uh, some cases, investors like to use what's called forwards, uh, the P-E ratio, which is dividing not by the actual numbers uh, of the actual earnings of the companies looking backwards, but the estimated earnings uh, that a company will have looking forwards. And that can either be over the forward uh, one year, meaning starting from today, how much money is that company going to earn over the next uh, 12 months? That's, an, that's another P-E ratio that you can have. Or you can have one that uses the next calendar year's earnings. So for example, we're recording that in March of 2023, one forward PE ratio could be, okay, what is the price of the company today divided by the estimated earnings per share that that company will earn in calendar year 2024. So that would be the forward PE ratio. Oftentimes it can make sense to do that because if a company's E is rapidly changing because the company is say growing, uh, you can get a more normalized look at the PE ratio. So there's just a couple of different flavors that are out there. All right. That's awesome. So for an investor to figure out like the trailing 12 months or the past E ratio makes sense, but how does a average investor look at the forward PE ratio? Do those numbers come from the company? Do they come from analysts? Do they come from thin air? Like where do those come from? Yeah, it's more analysts and thin air than the company <laughs> themselves. The companies themselves don't report their earnings or their estimated earnings uh, over the year. At least I've never seen a company that did that, nor would I really believe in a company that did that. Typically, the place that those uh, forward estimates come from are the analysts themselves. So analysts that cover companies, they typically create, pretend what they forecast and statement will look like this year, next year, and so on. And that's where it comes from. Uh, typically, the PE ratio, the forward PE ratio that you see published on websites like Yahoo Finance is kind of the average uh, estimate that analysts have for the next uh, year. And uh, so that makes it slightly more accurate since it's an average of a bunch of different analysts as opposed to just one person's opinion. That makes sense. Cool. All right. So we kind of teased at the beginning that we were going to talk about the PE ratio and what's wrong with it. So what's wrong with the PE ratio? 
Yeah, I think there's many things that, many reasons that the P-E ratio can be misleading, but they all get to the bottom number of the equation, right? So again, P-E stands for price to earnings, and the price is known a number. There's no debating uh, that. The tricky part about um, investing and using the P-E ratio is that the E, the stated earnings of a company that is used in that calculation, can be wildly misstated when compared to reality for a huge range of reasons. So if you are looking at the P.E. ratio and the actual earnings power of the business isn't fully captured in the E, you could get a price-to-earnings ratio that looks dramatically overstated in some cases, or you can get a P.E. ratio that looks dramatically understated in some cases. And if you don't understand that nuance before you rely on the P.E. ratio, it's very easy to look at the P.E. ratio in absolute terms and make the wrong conclusion. That makes a lot of sense. All right. So let's talk about the eight reasons why this all can happen. So reason number one is because of something called accrual accounting, accrual accounting, which is the accounting method that is used to draw up um, income statements. Uh, Accrual accounting is the standard way that income statements are created. And what it does is it shows a company's profitability in theory. It really smooths out a lot of the uh, the ups and downs that business can have from just making their operations. To showcase this principle, I really simply pretend that we owned a company and we were building a factory together. And we were going to create products from this factory. And uh, we spent $100 million on this factory. Well, investment that we made, that $100 million, does it make sense to put that on our income statement in year one? Well, you could argue no, because that factory has a useful life of 20 or perhaps even 30 uh, years. So while the cash out of our pocket would be $100 million on day one, that asset is going to have a useful life of 20 or 30 uh, years. So the way that accrual accounting works is you only expense a tiny portion of that factory on the income statement to give you a more complete view or more complete estimate of what the earnings power of the business So let's get back to that example. Let's say we spent $100 million in the factory. We expected that factory to last 20 years. Rather than saying in year one, our expenses are $100 million, uh, what we would do is we would say in year one, our expenses were $5 million, and we would accrue that $5 million expense every year for the life of the factory, in this case, 20 years. And the way that we would record that expense is something that is simply called depreciation, which everybody that owns and operates a car understands. Well, that is just one example of the difference between cash accounting and accrual accounting. And there's a whole bunch of different uh, reasons why the accounting numbers in accrual accounting and the numbers in cash accounting can be wildly uh, different. To throw out some other terms that can show a huge difference between the cash flow of a business and the stated earnings of a business, there's things like accounts receivable and accounts payable. There's amortization. Uh, There's things like deferred revenue and asset impairments. There's the hot topic of stock-based compensation or inventory, which a lot of companies are dealing with uh, the effects of COVID. But essentially, when you're thinking about the income statement, that is kind of like an accountant's opinion of the earnings of business. And that opinion can be wildly different uh, for a variety of reasons from the actual cash flow of business. And if you don't understand that dynamic, you can, again, look at that P-E ratio, which could be overstated or understated because of this simple accrual accounting, and you can make a completely wrong decision. When it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. 
When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Let's be honest here. Your sex life is important. It helps us feel more confident and boosts our happiness. But sometimes we struggle to perform. Our life gets in the way. This is where hymns can help. With their convenient and discreet online platform, you can get help for your erectile dysfunction from the comfort and privacy of your own home. No more waiting rooms, no more awkward conversations, just a simple, direct path to treatment that works around your life, not interrupts it. Invest in your health today. Hims is changing men's health care by providing access to affordable sexual health treatments from the comfort of your couch. Hims provides access to doctor-trusted ED treatment options such as chewable hard mints, brand-name treatments like Viagra, or generic alternatives for up to 95% cheaper. The process is simple and 100% online, no uncomfortable doctor visits. Answer a series of questions on their site, and a medical provider will determine the right treatment option. If prescribed, your medication ships to you free, no insurance is needed. If ED is getting you down, it's time you join the hundreds of thousands of trusted HIMSS subscribers and get treated. Start your free online visit today at HIMSS.com slash investing. That's H-I-M-S dot com slash investing for your personalized ED treatment options. HIMSS.com slash investing. Hard mints are chewable compounded products which are not approved by or verified for safety and effectiveness by the FDA. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See website for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So can we back up for just a second and, and maybe talk about the like an overview of the three main financial statements and maybe how they flow into each other. Because I think that idea of the income statement being an accounting statement and not an actual cash statement, I think can confuse some people. So maybe you could maybe kind of understand, walk people, maybe how that kind of flows from one to the other. Yeah, absolutely. So again, let's, let's use the, uh, the three statements and go over that, that pretend factory that we said that we built. So let's say we go out and we buy this factory, we build it, and it costs us $100 million in cash. We have $100 million sitting around. Well, on our balance sheet, we would list this asset, this $100 million asset in our long-term, in our long-term assets. A balance sheet is simply a financial statement that measures what you own and what you owe. It's kind of like you're a business's net worth. Uh, so we would list on our balance sheet, we have this $100 million uh, factory that we expect to live for uh, 20 uh, years. Well, then we operate the factory for a full year. We record our revenue from the sales of the products and we record all of our expenses. And the bottom line there would be the earnings or the net income of the company. And that is where uh, the P.E. ratio is derived from, the actual earnings on the net income statement. But as we said before, we're only going to take a minority, a small portion of that factory, and we're going to depreciate that on the income statement. So on the income statement, you would see a $5 million depreciation charge for that factory uh, each and every year for the next 20 uh, years. 
However, on the cash flow statement, the cash flow statement is very similar to like your checking account. So the only thing that the cash flow statement cares about is did money come in to your checking account or did money leave your checking account? So on the cash flow statement in our first year, we spent $100 million building our factory. So our cash flow statement would show a big fat negative $100 million outflow of the statement because $100 million actually left our account. So think about that for a second. On our cash flow statement, minus $100 million for this factory. And on our income statement, we only say it only cost us $5 million. That is a massive difference in the expenses uh, that we were recording for itself. Now, conversely, the cash flow statement in years nine, uh, two through nine through 20 would have zero uh, outflow for that building because it doesn't cost us additional capital where it would be recorded on the income statement. So over a long enough time period, the cash flow statement and the income statement will converge uh, with each other because they are reflecting the accounting um, realities in different ways. But in the short term, they can diverge greatly. Yeah, that makes- so let's move on to reason number two, equity investments. Yes. So a few years ago, the rules of, of accounting uh, changed. And what happened was uh, uh, companies that own publicly traded stock in other companies now on their income statement have to mark up their net income when those investments go up in value and they have to mark down their net income when those investments uh, lose value. So a real simple example of this is a company, a very popular company called Shopify. A few years ago, Shopify bought an equity investment in a company called Affirm. Affirm is a payment process company that breaks out big payments into uh, smaller paces as a company. Well, when Affirm became a publicly traded company, it now has a quoted stock price. And Affirm's stock price has been extremely volatile, just like many companies that have come public over the last couple of, of years. So in 2021, when Affirm came public, Shopify recorded on its income statement a massive gain because Affirm stock became public and went up a lot. So uh, Shopify's investment in a firm marked up the company's net income, which had a dramatic impact on the company's earnings and hence an impact on the company's price to earnings ratio. Well, over the last year, a firm stock has fallen dramatically, like so many tech companies uh, have, and Shopify now has to record that on its income statement. So if you look at the earnings of Shopify, they went down dramatically in 2022 simply because a firm's stock went down in 2022. And this is now happening with lots of companies. Berkshire Hathaway owns lots of publicly traded companies. (laughs) Google owns publicly traded companies. Amazon has a huge position in a company called Rivian. So for those companies and many others that own an equity stake in another company, the earnings of those companies are essentially now useless because the earnings will be dramatically impacted based on what happened to the stocks of the companies that they own. I would argue, does that really matter to figure out the earnings power of the business and hence the P.E. ratio? No. So if a company you're looking at owns an equity position in another company that's public, that company's P.E. ratio is all but useless. Yeah. What's the best way to get started in the market? Download Andrew's ebook for free at stockmarketpdf.com. 
totally agree. Berkshire, there was definitely one that I, is a company that I own and I'm very aware of the fluctuations of the earnings with that company. And that's why it's almost comical to see the people react favorably or unfavorably when his portfolio goes up and down and how much it impacts the earnings of that company. Well, it really has nothing to do with the performance of the businesses that he owns. So yeah, that's a great point. All right. One-time events. That's number three. So can you tell us about that? Yeah. Uh, I don't know about you, but uh, has have you ever gotten an unexpected bonus or you ever won a small lottery payout or you ever had um, an inheritance of some kind, right? Good one-time things can happen to us all in life and they are can be completely unpredictable. Well, unfortunately, or fortunately, the same thing can happen in businesses. Sometimes businesses have an asset that increases in value and they choose to sell that investment or sometimes they make a one-off deal. Well, the way that the income statement works is whenever a company gets a one-time windfall from an asset sale or from a tax gain or from any other one-time event, they have to temporarily increase the value of their income. Uh, so a couple of years ago, uh, for example, in 2018, uh, Starbucks sold its consumer goods business, the consumer goods portion of its business, to Nestle for $1.4 billion. So Starbucks no longer had the ability to sell their products. Consumer goods stores, Nestle essentially bought that business. Well, that transaction gave Starbucks a $1.4 billion one-time windfall uh, during that period, which artificially inflated its earnings by $1.4 billion. Well, what happened to the P.E. ratio uh, during that time? Earnings were temporarily high, so therefore the price-to-earnings ratio was temporarily low. So if you were in this period and you're looking at Starbucks's P.E. ratio, you'd be like, gosh, the P.E. ratio here is only 15, right? That is a it's bargain, <laughs> bargain for a company like Starbucks. It's never been that cheap. However, that windfall was off the books the next year, and then the P.E. ratio returned to its normalized number. But if you were making a decision in a period where a company has a one time event that's impacting earnings one way or the other. Again, the PE ratio is just going to be wrong. Yeah, that's awesome. Great, great example. All right, let's move on to unsustainable trend. I think this is probably one of my favorite ones. Great. So sometimes businesses create products or services that are going through an unnatural boom times. I mean, there's no better example of this than I can think of in recent years would be what happened to Etsy in 2020. The demand for Etsy's platform skyrocketed in 2020 because everybody needed a mask. Uh, all these sellers came to market and they were selling masks and they were taking advantage of this one-time boom in sales for full made uh, goods. So Etsy's revenue and their net income absolutely skyrocketed in 2020. Well, because their revenue and net income were riding this one-time unsustainable trend, their P.E. ratio, their earnings exploded, and that caused their P.E. ratio to shrink, even though their stock was increasing at the time. And again, if you were just looking at the P.E. ratio during that uh, period, you could make an argument that their earnings power, the actual earnings power of the business, was overstated because it was riding an unsustainable uh, trend. Uh, another time that this happened to me specifically was back in 2014, a company called Gilead Sciences uh, launched two blockbuster drugs that cured hepatitis C. It completely cured hepatitis C, which was amazing. And the sales for these drugs were just astronomically uh, high. Every, uh, there were millions of people that had hepatitis C, and they went out as soon as they could and got this cure for hepatitis C. 
So during this period, Gilead Science's revenue and profits exploded. I'm talking about revenue more than tripled and profits more than 10x during this period. And I looked at the company's P.E. ratio and saw it was trading at 6. I was like, the P.E. ratio here is 6, and this company's growing 300% per year. Like, does it get any better if you are an investor? Uh, But what I didn't realize, and the market did, was the company was riding an unsustainable trend because after it cured these patients of hepatitis C, they didn't need to buy from Gilead any longer, which is wonderful for humanity, but it just artificially inflated Gilead's earnings. So again, if you were looking at the PE ratio to make a decision like I was, you ended up losing money. Yeah, that, that's a great example. And you know, it's, it's great for humanity, like you said, but the company, not so much. All right, let's move on to the next one, cyclical demand. Mm-hmm. So this one is particularly uh, tricky. Some industry sell goods and services that are just naturally prone to booms and busts. A great example of this more recently would just be the energy markets. If you've pulled up a long-term chart of, say, oil prices around the globe, you know that they go up sometimes and then they go down other times. It is literally a yo-yo. And demand, it's not that the demand for oil is moving around that much. It's just that when oil prices are high, companies are incentivized to go out and find more oil. And they usually find more oil, which brings a flood of new oil to the market. And that causes the supply demand to be imbalanced. And that causes prices to tank. And then prices stay low for a bit. So the profits, the profitability of companies that have cyclical demand because of some commodity price aren't very predictable. And because they're not very predictable, during boom times, the earnings absolutely skyrocket. Like um, last year, when oil prices went through the roof because of the uh, the war in uh, Europe, um, the profits of Exxon and Chevron just absolutely skyrocket because oil prices and energy prices went extremely, extremely, extremely high. So if you're looking at a cyclical company at that peak, oftentimes its P.E. ratio looks extremely low. And that's the market's way of saying the earnings here is not sustainable. The earnings here are riding cyclical upswing, and eventually they will fall down as energy prices uh, decline. So if you're investing in a company that has maybe they're a gold maker, or they're investing in some commodity that has a cyclicality to it, or it's an industrial company that does very well when the economy is running hot, but demand evaporates when the company is uh, going strong. In, for those companies, the P.E. ratio will literally always tell you the wrong thing. The P.E. ratio will be very low at the cyclical peaks, and it'll be extremely high at the cyclical bottoms. So you literally, if you're going to use the P.E. ratio, you have to do it in reverse. When the P.E. ratio is low, that's the time to sell. And when the P.E. ratio is sky high, that's actually the time to buy. Budgeting was always a challenge for me. I struggled to find the best way to keep track of all of my money, not to mention all the time tracking down receipts, cataloging expenses, and trying to figure out what went wrong with my air quote system until Monarch Money. Monarch Money allowed me to easily see what is going on with my finances, helping me get a better handle on my spending, budgets, and more. It's my go-to app every day, more so than my bank, because I can quickly see where I am with my budgets and spending, allowing me to invest more and spend time on the things that I want to do. It's my GPS for money. Monarch is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all of your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com beginners. 
Unlike other personal finance apps, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch has built-in features to collaborate with your partner, family, or financial advisor. Invite them to your account at no extra cost, and they'll get their own login info and a joint view of all of your finances. Monarch is the most customizable budgeting app. Change the layout of your dashboard, toggle between light and dark mode, create custom budgets and notifications, set up automatic rules for transactions and notifications, and more. In fact, Monarch Money is one of the first to bring you direct Apple Card, Apple Cash, and savings syncing with the latest iOS 17.4 update. Now you can sync your wallet directly for seamless budgeting. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash beginners. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash beginners for your extended 30-day free trial. I'm Richard Serrett. Join me on Strange Planet for in-depth conversations with the world's top paranormal investigators, alien abductees, Bigfoot trackers, monster hunters, time travelers, alternative archaeologists, remote viewers, and more. As I was on the way to Area 51, I was stopping on the side of the road and just taking measurements, and I found this one spot where time slowed down by a fraction of a second. It's not supposed to do that. From the two big categories, animal mutilations and human abductions, you have to conclude that genetic material is being harvested. Well, I reached for a rifle and uh, I, I turned and looked and it was, it was already moving away and it was descending the bluff. Uh, there's no way any human could have went down it. It was probably a 75 degree angle straight down almost. On Richard Serrett's Strange Planet, we're redefining reality. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Do not go any further. Turn around. Go home. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So can you list off maybe a couple other industries that might be considered cyclical beyond something like a commodity or something like an industrial? Yeah, it is really any business that does not have recurring revenue to it. And you, the real thing to ask yourself is what happens to the buyer's behavior when a recession comes? So basically, anything uh, that is non-discretionary typically has a boom or bust cycle to it. So an example would be the travel tree. Uh, when everybody has a job and money is flowing, like the demand for travel tends to be really high. But when a recession comes along, that's often one of the things that people pull back on naturally. So the travel industry would be a one. But the thing, the key thing to ask yourself is what happens to the behavior of the buyers during bad times? If it's toothpaste and soap and toilet paper, you're going to be buying that no matter what is happening. But if it's a luxury good and consumers can delay the purchase, that is typically when the PE ratio isn't going to be the best. Okay. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. All right, let's move on. That kind of, I guess, segues into the next one. In- industry dynamics. Yeah. There is a couple of industries out there, just by their very nature, uh, the income statement is not the best way to judge their progress. The most famous one out there to me would just be the the financial sector, and specifically banks and bank stocks. If you are going to be analyzing the banking industry, uh, the income statement isn't useless, but it is not the financial statement that you should focus on. You should be focusing very heavily on the balance sheet. That is where all the secret sauce is. Uh, for the banking industry. So I didn't understand this years ago, and I would look at companies like, say, Wells Fargo or uh, Bank of America, and I would see they'd be trading at P.E. ratios of like six or seven, and I'd be like, oh, 
well, that sounds great, right? These things are so cheap and they pay uh, high uh, dividends. Well, what was the P.E. ratio of Silicon Valley Bank uh, two or three weeks ago? I don't know, but no matter what it was, it was a useless metric uh, for figuring out if that company was a buy or not. Uh, Another industry that comes to mind is just the biotech sector. The way that that industry works is uh, companies often spend hundreds of millions of dollars over the course of a decade to research and get a drug uh, to market. And once the com- drug comes to market, if it's a winner, like it can quickly sell hundreds of millions or even billions of dollars. So if you're looking at the P.E. ratio of those companies during their development phase – you're going to get a negative number because they have no earnings. And yet some of these companies with awful looking financials can actually become fantastic investments if their drug ends up uh, hitting it uh, big time. And the last one that I would say is the um, real estate investment trust market. Any company that takes advantage of the tax laws associated with REITs, oftentimes those companies are taking enormous depreciation charge on purpose to keep their earnings unartificially low. So it just doesn't work in those cases. But again, this is the kind of the nuances you need to understand. Okay. All right. So let's move on to item number five, disruption. Yeah. So this is one that can be particularly tricky to think about, but it's going to become increasingly more important to realize this trait, especially as we move forward, because I believe that right now we're in like one of the most disruptive periods in, in human history, given all the changes that we're seeing. But essentially, sometimes a company's earnings, a co- the business can actually enter a permanent state of decline because the company's core business is simply being disrupted. And this is actually a very critical thing for investors to understand because if that company's business is being disrupted, no valuation metric will save you. Think back to think back to the period of 2003. I don't know what the numbers are, but I can guarantee you that Blockbuster's price to earnings ratio looked pretty pretty attractive, right? However, what was about to happen to Blockbuster over the next five years? That company got disrupted by Netflix. So it doesn't matter if you paid one times earnings for Blockbuster in 2003. Within a couple of years, you lost 100% of your investment. So the if a company is actively being disrupted, the P.E. ratio is just utterly useless. A very big company that this happened to over the last 10 years was General Electric, uh, GE. If you look back to the period of 2007, General Electric's P.E. ratio was 14. This is a big blue chip, like super blue chip company, very dependable, all that kind of stuff. And if you you could have made the argument that 14 times earnings for General Electric is fairly cheap. Well, if you bought in 2007 at 14 times earnings, you had to stomach a 90% loss over the next 14 years. And the reason is a couple of General Electric's business units got completely disrupted and the company went through the financial crisis, which which had which hobbled it greatly. But General Electric's earnings, the E, were essentially at a at a peak, and they have been declining ever since. So, if a company is uh, if their earnings are slated to permanently uh, decline moving forward because of disruption, the PE ratio won't save you. Yeah, that's that's perfect. All right, let's move on to number eight. This is unquestionably my favorite chart you have here: the eight business growth cycle. So, let's talk about the business growth cycle. Yeah, this is something that super confused me, and I would say would be the number one reason that I have gotten the P.E. ratio uh, wrong. 
Uh, Broadly speaking, if you think about the business growth cycle that a company goes through, the company that becomes publicly traded, there are some fairly predictable things that are going to happen during that that company's uh, life cycle. So think about a company that is a startup. Let's say me and you had an idea uh, for a market opportunity, and we wanted to go after it, and we needed venture capitalist uh, funds to take advantage of this market opportunity. Well, it's very common for companies that are in the startup stage to have essentially no revenue or maybe a teeny tiny bit of revenue. However, they are often hiring like crazy in order to build out the infrastructure that they need to take advantage of this opportunity that they see. This is a lot of tech companies that we've seen come public over the last couple of years are kind of in the very early innings of their business growth cycle. During this stage, it's very common for them to show bottom line losses, right? They are losing money on the bottom line on purpose because they're using venture capital funds or outside capital to fund the business to get, to increase the scale so they can take advantage of an opportunity they see. Companies that successfully make it through that tough period of of losses, then their next goal becomes break even, right? Coming up with essentially getting to zero on the bottom line, get to the point where they are no longer losing money, which is a major accomplishment if a company uh, can get there. But a company that reaches that that break-even point after a couple of years, uh, what is the earnings of the business at that point? It is essentially extremely low. And once the company has earnings, because the earnings are so low, the P-E ratio finally becomes a number, right? It kind of becomes a number that you can see. And oftentimes, the P-E ratio of these companies, like Amazon in the mid-2000s or Google in the 2010s, looks insane. It looks like it's 1,000 or 500 or often in the hundreds. And if you look at that number in isolation, you're going to say to yourself, no way. I am not buying a company that's trading at a thousand times earnings. That is just insane. The thing that I missed and thing that took me a long time to understand is that companies that just become profitable are not focused on uh, generating, maximizing their profits. Oftentimes, companies that just become profitable are focused on maximizing their revenue. And because of that, the price-to-earnings ratio is not the right metric to look at. However, as of after a company comes profitable, it is common for the business to shift its focus towards profitability, to really squeeze out as much profits from the revenue that's generated as possible. And it's only after that process is over and the company is fully optimized for earnings that the true earnings power of the business is stated and hence the P-E ratio becomes useful. So for decades, I heard people saying, Amazon's price-to-earnings ratio is crazy. It's 200, it's 500, and they passed on buying it, and the stock kept going up and up and up and up. And it actually proved that uh, buying at 100 times earnings or 1,000 times earnings was fantastic. And the thing that people got wrong, including myself for so long, is Amazon wasn't focused on profits. It was focused on revenue. And Amazon's P-E ratio will only become useful once the company is focused on profits. And who knows when that'll ever become. <laughs> I think this is probably one of the more uh, insightful ideas of all the things that we talked about today, because the business life cycle dictates what the company is doing. I was reading a 10K the other day 
where the the CEO said specifically, we will not focus on profitability until we feel like we get our sales maximized and we're going to spend every penny to have our operating income be zero or to be flat, our operating margin to be flat or negative because we want to keep investing to grow the business. And now that I understand that, I thought that was a brilliant assessment. But a few years ago, I probably would have been like, okay, yeah, pass. These guys nuts. <laughs> so I, I think this idea of the business growth cycle is so critical to understanding not only how to value the company, but also what stage they're in and, and what to expect from the business as they're going forward. I, I love this idea that you guys came up with. I, you know, kudos to that. Oh, awesome. Yeah, this is really important. And there's nothing wrong with investing in companies that are losing money. There's nothing wrong with investing in companies that have a very high PE ratio. And there's nothing wrong with saying, to heck with all that, I'm going to wait until the company actually has profits and I'm not going to invest till then. That latter is exactly how Warren Buffett invest. Warren Buffett only looks, he really focuses on companies that are already optimized for profits. He wants to buy companies that have gone through all that hard work and they are as close to a sure thing as, as you can get. And he has a fantastic track record. So you can do very, very well by only focusing on companies that have already reached the profit maximization uh, phase. The tricky thing that investors get into is they are looking at companies that are in break-even phase or they're in the investment phase, and they are looking at the P.E. ratio and saying, well, this is an insane number. I'm not going to use it. It's not that it's an insane number. It's that it's simply too early in that company's growth phase for the P.E. ratio to be to be useless. Yeah, to be relevant. Useless. Yeah. So, all right. So we spent all this time, you know, almost 30 minutes talking about how useless the P.E. ratio is. And people are probably listening to us going, ah, Dave, Brian, uh, what am I supposed to do? So what do people do? What should investors do? Yeah, so the P.E. ratio is actually my favorite valuation metric uh, to look at, which I might be funny when giving that I ever just said, knocking it. The real thing that you need to keep in mind, though, is that you have to ask yourself, is the E in the P.E. ratio a real number? Is it an actual, useful, optimized number that is dependable for the long term? If the answer there is yes, the P.E. ratio could be a great tool, a great shorthand for figuring out, is this company a bargain or not? Uh, the tricky thing, as we've discussed, is that there are many, many, many reasons why the earnings power of a company will be understated and the P.E. ratio won't be useful. So the key thing to do is to first figure out what stage of development is the business in? And the second thing to figure out is what ratio or what metric is most useful for measuring that company's value depending on which stage the company is in. So if a company is in the startup phase, the real thing to look at is the company's total addressable market opportunity. This is something that venture capitalists look at all the time. If the company is in stage two, which is in the hyper growth phase, the only really metric that you can look at to figure out is the company of value is called the price to sales ratio. It's the ratio of the company's market value to its sales per share. When it's in the self-funding phase, so when it comes a break-even, that's when you can use other metrics such as the reverse discounted cash flow model. You can get fancy with a discounted cash flow uh, model, or you can look at other non-profit metrics like gross profit or operating profit as a metric. But it's really only once a company becomes fully optimized for profit that things like the price-to-earnings ratio and the price-to-free cash flow ratio become relevant metrics. So it's just critical to understand how the business growth cycle works so you don't use the wrong metric at the wrong time. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, 
Brian, that was amazing. I love the overview of the PE ratio and all the ins and outs of it. And I can't stress how important it is to understand what it is you're looking at. So you look at it in context and be able to figure out what's going on and really focus on that business cycle because that will help you determine what kinds of ratios you could use instead of just taking one and you trying to fit that square into every circle it's better to try to use the different tools instead of the hammer for every nail, trying to use different tools for different nails. And I think that's so important. So you guys have fantastic resources. You have YouTube videos, you have Twitter, and you also have this fantastic newsletter that you guys just started creating. Can you tell me more about that? Yeah. So uh, me and my uh, business partners, who are both named Brian, uh, send uh, created a very simple uh, newsletter that goes out once a week. It's called Long Term Mindset, and if it and in it we just tell uh, one investing lesson, and we share uh, graphics that we make related to uh, in- investing, and we also share a couple of the uh, links to timeless investing content that we think investors should know. So if people are interested in that, they can just sign up on my website, which is brianforaldi.com. Yeah, and it's awesome. I I signed up a while ago, and I read it every week, and it's it's a nice short synopsis, and they have great stories in there, and it's fantastic. I really recommend people check it out and subscribe to it. So it's worth worth your time for sure. So Brian, thank you very much for joining us today. This was a lot of fun doing our first live show. So it was kind of exciting and it was a lot of fun. So, and you imparted a lot of great wisdom as always. So thank you for, for that. Awesome. Well, thank you for having me and awesome to be uh, the first uh, in-person interview. So, yeah, awesome. but uh, don't worry, Andrew's coming back soon. Yes, he is. All right. All right, guys. So with that, I'll go ahead and wrap us up. You guys go out there and invest with a margin of safety, emphasis on the safety. Have a great week and we'll talk to you all next week. We hope you enjoyed this content. Seven Steps to Understanding the Stock Market shows you precisely how to break down the numbers in an engaging and readable way with real life examples. Get access today at stockmarketpdf.com. Until next time, have a prosperous day. The information contained is for general information and educational purposes only. It is not intended for a substitute for legal, commercial, and or financial advice from a licensed professional. Review our full disclaimer at einvestingforbeginners.com.